Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I welcome you back, those of you who have been following along as we do, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this book of Revelation. I was looking at it the other day, and I can't believe we've already covered two complete chapters. So today we'll be looking at chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, and I'm going to look at this fifth church, the message to the church of Sardis. And so again, to give it context, I want to read this in order for you to uh, to hear this context and to perhaps just listen to it. Or you can follow along if you can have a copy of God's Word. Please open it up to Revelation chapter 3. And I will read these six verses to this church of Sardis. The Word of God reads, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, And you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. One of the most frightening things I think the of the, all the, these letters to the churches would be for the letter to come from John the Apostle, in which Jesus Christ has given him these words for your church. Think about this: the people in that real church at that time heard this letter read to them, and they hear that you are dead. Your church is a dead church. I can't think of a more frightening word coming from the Lord Jesus himself than that. So the question today, as I I write down this uh, title today, I want to give you the title. I don't always present the title, but it's always listed on the messages. The title of today's message is this. Is your church dead? Is the church you're attending or the church you're leading dead? That would be a very interesting question because I would doubt that very few, if any, true or uh, actual church of today would say they're dead. For that word dead doesn't communicate. For some would say, I think that church or that message I heard in that church, I think they're dead. And dead could mean then they're old fashioned, they're a little stuffy, they're not. They're not loose. They're oh, they sing old songs. I think that could be a connotation people could attach to dead. But I think you're gonna, if you'll stick with me, we'll see what dead actually is, and look at this, and then ask yourself: Am I in a dead church? Am I tolerating this and just become complacent to this? And do I need to leave that church? So bear with me as we get into this. You see, this first few chapters are really about the present age. Christ and his church. John has received the revelation 
to write certain things. In fact, in, Re- in Revelation chapter 1, he's told to write the things which you have seen, which is in chapter 1, which is the vision of Christ. And then, he has said, then it is said, write the things that, uh, that are, and that is the church age, in which he is the very present, or the very beginning of that church age. John is still living at that time, at, this, at the time of this writing. And uh, it continues all through the 2,000, approximate 2,000 years of church history. And so the first chapters are about the present, Christ and his church, Christ in his church. This is Christ speaking to these seven churches. Now remember, in Asia Minor, there were seven churches that had been established in seven different cities. In other words, very real churches in very real cities. And we remember... In most of this, that Paul founded the church in Ephesus. That church became strong, according to Acts chapter 19, uh, and, and expanded throughout the rest of Asia Minor. And when I say Asia Minor, I mean modern Turkey today. The churches were established in many cities, and we don't even have a list of all those, but seven of them mentioned here are these seven listed in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. But some 30 years have passed, and so... Over that period of time, these churches, 30 years have passed since they have been started, they've begun to differ from each other in some ways. And at this particular time, at the very end of the first century, the Lord reveals letters to these seven churches. He gives them by revelation to John. John writes them down as a portion of the book of Revelation with all of the rest of the visions. And then they are taken to the representatives of those churches who came to visit John on the Isle of Patmos and are distributed back to those seven churches. Each of these churches mentioned, these seven, are real. I can't make that clear enough because if you read much about Revelation, so many say these are not real churches, but they are real churches. Each of these churches has a particular characteristic or need. And five of them, you, you'll begin to realize, are in very serious trouble. Two of them are commended for their good works or good things about them, which is the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia will be next week. The other five are condemned in some way. This is one of those condemned churches. It, you see, in the first century, uh, like much of the, the, the church history, it's, it wasn't easy to live and to preach the, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It just wasn't easy. To uphold the gospel in, in the times in which they were living, uh, Christ, remember, had been rejected early. The apostles had been killed. At this time of writing, John is the final apostle, and he's been exiled. Uh, and so the church was under persecution. The church was under per, uh, fierce persecution. And so you have these churches living in a very hostile world, uh, persecuting uh, the churches themselves and the character that developed in those situations. So the Lord recognizes the character of these churches or the issues in each of these churches, and you'll see they are very unique. And yet there's a, these represent churches throughout all of the ages. So really, the, these would be timeless letters. Uh, at, at any point in time, they could be representatives of churches of all of these seven kinds. Uh, I know for a fact there are churches... Uh, in this country right now that operate uh, as a church that are much like this church of Sardis, which is a very sad thing. But I think you will probably agree. You may uh, know of some. And so I want to uh, to get into this. The outline is very simple, along with the, with the way we've been doing it, is the very first point is uh, the correspondent. 
And uh, I know that uh, John MacArthur uses this. I know that uh, several others use that kind of a, an outline because they all begin in C, and so you, you find this in a lot of commentaries. But the first thing about the correspondent is that the designation here in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. It's just by way of introduction uh, the church, by definition, is alive. I, I want you to understand that. It's a place where God lives, uh, where Christ lives, and where the Spirit lives. There are believers in the church. In fact, the church, according to the New Testament definition, it is a group of called-out believers or baptized believers, uh, separated from the world and, and meeting together, uh, which are is typical. They they. A church has been given life. A church is to be the fellowship of those who possess true uh, spiritual life and who possess eternal life. But not this church. This church is, is very unique, and you'll see by the way the correspondent introduces himself to this church. It's a very interesting way, and all of the, inter- the introductions of the writer, who is the Lord, uh, borrowed these certain titles from chapter 1, the vision, or in other parts of chapter 1. Here he calls himself the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Well, what does that mean, the seven spirits of God? Well, that appears several times in the book of Revelation. We looked at some of this in chapter 1. But we're talking about since there's only one Holy Spirit, the best way to understand this when it says spirits of God is perhaps Isaiah chapter 11. That might be a good place to start. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you, if, you, if you were to be there or you can hear verse 2, you begin to see the identification of the Holy Spirit that has multiple aspects. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, capital I-M, capital H-I-M, uh, will rest on Him, meaning the Messiah, the branch that comes from Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. And then it goes on to say, the Spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so you can see that these actually make up the complete of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the Lord is one, and then there are six more identifying characteristics. He is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear, or the spirit of worship. This is what we would say is the fullness of the Spirit. So when the Bible talks about the seven spirits, it's talking about the sevenfold spirit, uh, meaning that it's the complete, full, Holy Spirit. In other words, in all aspects of the Holy Spirit. So here the Son of God who has the fullness of the Spirit also holds in His hand seven stars, taken out of chapter 1 again. And so it, this shows that Christ holds the seven stars in his hand. The seven stars are the seven ministers of the churches. So the author here identifies himself, the Lord, as the one who possesses the fullness of the Spirit. You don't have to let that throw you because we know the Holy Spirit is one yet designated in all of these aspects. Understanding, counsel, strength, wisdom, knowledge, all that makes sense. And so we don't have to explain much of that. Just like the Trinity, how, how much can you explain about the Trinity that there are three in one? Now, why does he identify himself this way? Well, because it seems that that's exactly what's missing in this church. You say, what's missing in this church? Well, what's missing in this church is the Holy Spirit. Here is a church, and I want you to hear this, without the Holy Spirit. Yet it is a church. They call themselves a church, 
And generally speaking, they are without the Holy Spirit. A church, obviously, with pastors who are not faithful, who do not belong to the Lord. Frightening kind of thing. Here the Lord identifies himself uh, not in judgment, not as the one who's omniscient, even though he is, and sees everything with laser eyes, which he does, and comes with uh, a burnished bronze feet to trample out judgment on his church. There's really no judgment here in this letter as such, because this is a dead church to start with. It's a description of the one who writes the letter that speaks to the real issue. The one who has the seven spirits and who has in his hand true ministers, he's actually writing to a church, a church in Sardis, that has neither. It doesn't have true ministers and it doesn't have the Holy Spirit. You see, they have forfeited the Holy Spirit and faithful leadership. They're being led by false leaders void of the Holy Spirit. The life and power of the Holy Spirit is not present. That is a... You know, just think about that. Think about someone calling your church dead. That'd be one thing. But for the Lord himself to call your church dead can only mean one thing. And we're going to take a look at that when we get to the church. So there's no godly leadership. And without the Holy Spirit, without godly leadership, there is no live church. Now, they may look like they're alive. They may have people, but it's dominated by the flesh. It's dominated by sin. It's dominated by unbelief mostly populated by unsaved non-believers, unregenerate. There's no life at all, although there would seem to be some believers who were indifferent and some who were faithful. Now, that leads me to the city. That's the uh, one who writes this to this church. But the city is Sardis, and what kind of place is that? Well, there's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a rich city. Uh, there's really not a lot to know. It's very much like most of the other cities. They're full of, of pagan worship there. It's an ancient capital in the region going all the way back to 1,200 years before Christ. They said this city was rich in gold and silver, and there are some, are some historical indications that it might have been the first place where gold and silver were coined, which doesn't mean that much to us at all. But it became the center for wool and, uh, and dye, uh, dying things that were particularly common in the ancient world. By the middle of the 6th century, the city attained a, a, a rating on this. In fact, they became known as the place where uh, wool and carpet and things like this or rugs could be dyed. By the time we come to the New Testament, there's a temple there. There's false worship there to Caesar, to false gods. And, and this has been going on for quite a while. And so you find, once again, where we find a city in which it is, a, it is a pagan city. It's very much uh, uh, under the, the reign and the power of Satan. Uh, and so you, you, you find this city, and you find in this city there is the church in Sardis. There wasn't another church. You, you chose this church, or there was no other church to attend. Very unlike today. So its history as a city was a history of degeneration. Uh, a history of just kind of getting worse and worse and worse. And from the days of its own glory, it had crumbled into nothing. It had been rebuilt by the Romans. So politically it had declined. Morally it had declined. Economically it had declined. And the Christian church that was here, the church in Sardis, was in a rotting condition. Its vitality and its power are gone. It was a kind of a, a dead thing, a, a corpse 
a degenerate church in a degenerating city. Sad commentary about that. Which brings me to number three. Number one is the correspondent. Number two is the city. Number three is the church. Well, what about this church? Well, it talks about the church in Sardis, but we don't really know anything about it. Basically, Nothing. How about that? We know nothing. We don't know who founded it. We don't have names of people associated with it in Scripture. So we don't really know anything. Obviously, it is founded uh, as part of the outgrowth of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 as it spread through Asia Minor. But there's no mention of anyone specific. There's no mention of persecution against this church, although there must have been because all the other churches showed it in the region. There must have been some. There's no mention of, of, of their theology. It must have been bad theology. There was no mention of false teachers, but there must have been some. There's no mention of, of compromise with the world. There's no mention of sin, but the church must have been involved in all of that because out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, this church is dead. The spiritual history of the church of Sardis is a very sad commentator. Commentation. Common commentary can't get that word out. Now, number four, I want you to look at the commendation uh, or the condemnation. There is no commendation on this church. One of the rare ones in, in these seven that there is, he's not commending them for a thing. So we'll skip that on this outline and we'll go straight to number four condemnation. Now we come to the opening of the letter and look at verse one of chapter three of, of Revelation. Uh, he who gives the introduction. Then he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And then at the end of verse 2, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Another way to say that would be, uh, I have not found your deeds satisfactory or acceptable to God. I know your deeds, you're dead, your deeds are not acceptable Imagine that. Now, what would the, what would that mean? What is this all talking about? First, we'll begin to see the reality. Uh, this really is coming from the Lord, and He is omniscient. He sees everything. He misses nothing. There is nothing to be commended in this unsaved church. The church is in the world. The church is so defiled that it is dead. Now, I know this is going to create some questions for some. They're just not going to understand some of this. But it has decayed on the inside. Probably started out as an okay church. But people have moved on. Uh, The spiritual leadership perhaps left. Uh, Worldly leadership has taken over. Uh, Very few, if any, believers in this church. But yet they're operating as a church. They have deeds. They have things they're doing. And that is the disturbing part. They deny Christ. They deny the authority of the Scriptures. I don't think you would find an expository preaching in this church. I don't think you would find much of anything godly in this church because they can't be. They're dead. He says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Some translations say that word dead just means you have, or you have a name means you have a reputation uh, that you are alive, but you are actually dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins is a phrase we pick up from the Scriptures. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, so where there, where that death is defined, death and trespasses and sins. You see, before we became believers, we were dead spiritually, and that's what all of this relates to. We didn't realize we were dead spiritually. We thought we were very much alive. In fact, if you're listening to this message, you would not admit you're dead spiritually because you don't know whether you really are. 
But we were dead spiritually, and then Christ saved us. We become alive in Christ. Colossians says essentially the same thing in Colossians 2.13. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And when it says dead, it means spiritually dead. So when this is uh, words, it says in verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. You are dead. It doesn't mean a church where there's nothing but physical dead people stacked up in a room. It means spiritually dead. And so we, we have to understand that if we're going to understand what this dead means. I used to be spiritual, spiritually dead. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, you, if you are a true believer in Christ, were spiritually dead. The reason you're a true believer in Christ now is because at one point you became a spiritually alive. This is a church full in Sardis of unconverted people, unsaved people. Now, I know that there are churches all across this land just like that. There are churches uh, that are attended by people and led by people who don't believe the Bible, who, who don't believe in Christ, who don't believe the gospel. They're dead churches. You might think they're alive because they might have exciting music. They might have loud and exciting music. They might have a lot of clapping and singing and, and fun and emotion. But it doesn't mean they're alive. We are so confused as a, as a generation of people. We don't know what a, a live message is compared to a dead message. But these are dead churches. And this church of Sardis is a dead church. And it is a warning to us today. Much like it would have been a warning then. Is our church in danger of dying? Is our church in danger of getting caught up in worldly attractions or ungodly worship? You can tell a dead church by certain things. Here's how you might can tell. It's concerned with tradition more than the teaching of God's words. It's concerned with, with form or it's concerned with liturgy. It's concerned with welfare. It's concerned with the social ills or the social norms of the community. It's concerned with tolerance of sin. It's preoccupied with systems. It's concerned with material things, not spiritual things. It doesn't proclaim the gospel. It doesn't uphold the scriptures. It doesn't pursue holiness. And it is definitely not upholding the word of God as the authority at all. So, what happened here to this church? Well, we're not really told what happened. You can ask what kills a church, and you have to come up with an answer is this. Sin kills a church. Error kills a church. Compromise kills a church. A sin in the members, sin in the leaders. And uh, one thing I want you to understand when I say this is this. We're not talking about a church full of believers that are going to lose their salvation. We're not talking about being a spiritually alive and then becoming spiritually dead. That is impossible. And I want to make sure that that is not communicated in this message. We're talking about people who are unregenerate, spiritually dead. That means they have never come to spiritual life. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who has come to spiritual life because God gives it to them. He speaks to the heart and transforms the heart. And it is people who are spiritually alive. That person will never be dead uh, physically. I mean, uh, spiritually dead. That person will always be alive spiritually. Now, Sardis went through the motions. 
like some of the emotions of a lot of churches. It says, I know your deeds. They were sufficient to give a name among men. Uh, 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 They look like a church, in other words, but whatever whatever they did and participated in, their deeds were not sufficient. And so this is a very worldly church. It's a very dead church. Uh, which is a very scary thing. In fact, one of the scariest passages I think there is in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 7 when people uh, come before the Lord at death and they say, Lord, did we not do many wonderful things and in your name cast out demons and, and all of this, these deeds they did. And Christ says, depart from me for I never knew you. These are people in Matthew 7 that thought they were alive and they were dead. Here is a church that thinks it's alive, but they are dead. But I want you to notice something in verse 4. It says, but you have a few people, uh, uh, no, uh, verse, verse 2, wake up and strengthen uh, what you have, uh, strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds to be completed. And so he's telling them the deeds are not sufficient, they're not uh, uh, accepted, so wake up, wake up and strengthen this. Wake up and, 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 and do these kinds of things that you know are the right things to do. And so this becomes a very dangerous thing for a church to look at because a church, when you, when you teach the gospel, only those who have been called of God are going to answer. And I know this is going to be confusing. So when this says here to the church to wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God, it becomes a very confusing thing because uh, we look at this and the church as a whole is dead. There are few who have not sold their garments, but yet he's giving them a command to wake up. And that is to realize or to repent. Now, not all are going to repent because God has not called some of them for salvation. But nevertheless, the warning and the gospel goes out to these people to accept the gospel, to receive the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to believe in Christ. And it says, or else I'm going to come to you. So, you are to wake up, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. And that is the what little bit there is in that church, strengthen those things. The church as a whole is dead, but the church is, is, has a little few things there that are alive. But then look at what it says in verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it. Repent. And, and this, again, is talking about certain things. The, to the unbelievers, he says, wake up. Hey, believe Christ. Uh, trust Christ. But to the believers, he is saying, strengthen. And to the believers, he is saying, remember uh, the things that Christ has done for you. And repent of this, the things that are, are, are damaging to your spiritual walk. And then he says, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. And that again is to unbelievers. Not to the believers. The believers are awake. The believers are followers of Christ. And that day will not overtake us. That's why uh, it even says in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Come, Lord Jesus. And it says the same thing in Revelation chapter 22. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You will not come, you will not know what hour I'm coming upon you, and that is the coming in judgment to unbelievers. But look at verse 4. But there's a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Uh, in other words, God always has a remnant. There's, all, there's some here, true believers. Few unspotted from the world, a few believers among the unbelievers. And that word, uh, 
soiled their garments is used in reference to dyeing or coloring of a fabric changing its colors. They haven't stained, or, or really it says uh, they haven't stained their garments. They haven't polluted their garments. It could even be translated smeared their garments. Garments have a reference to the character. And character uh, has a reference to the, the, that total of the person. And even in pagan worship, there were some interesting things you could find out looking at the history. Pagans were to come to worship only when they had clean clothes. They were not to come with dirty clothes. Even pagan worship. They were a symbol of their goodness and their virtue. They wanted to present themselves to the false deities cleaned up. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So the people who came with undefiled garments spiritually speaking those who had been cleansed by christ literally they've been covered by the righteousness of christ this is speaking about believers in isaiah but here he's talking about in verse four he's talking about there are some who have not soiled or stained their garments these are people who are true believers their garments are clean and white uh, believers are so identified later in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad. In verse 7 it says of 19, And give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. There again, it's clean linen without the soil or the stains on the garments. Revelation 7 these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We're talking about believers who have made their garments white in the blood of the Lamb, who are covered with the righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, I want you to notice the commands. There are five of them given to us uh, in verses... Uh, Two and three, just generally speaking. He says, wake up. And we said this is to uh, believers, uh, non-believers. Wake up. Uh, trust the Lord. Uh, to believers, he is saying, strengthen. And then to the believers also, remember. And so we, we come to this section with, a, with an understanding that this is a church that has a few people in it. Now, it's called a church. They might look like a church, sound like a church, act like a church to other people, but they're not a church. And so he gives us a command next, number five, the commands, and it's found here uh, as we go through here. But look at what he says in verse five. He who overcomes, and this is the promise he gives. The commands were in verses two and three. Uh, but this is the promise he gives to them. In verses, uh, verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garment, and I will erase, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, this is also very confusing. This is not saying that Christ will at some point possibly erase your name from the book of life. That cannot be true. And I want to present something to you, and I don't have a lot of time to cover it, but in the harmony of scriptures, we know this. That no one scripture can contradict another scripture. All scripture has to be a supporting of itself. In other words, one verse of scripture to test the interpretation of it <clears throat> or the understanding of it, it has to be able to withhold the whole weight of the rest of the Bible. And so, if this were true, that he could one day uh, take your name out of the Lamb's Book of Life, that would be going against so many verses of scripture. You see, our 
<coughs> our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the world. They weren't written in there at the time of salvation. They were written in there before Genesis 1.1. When you think about that, you have to understand that Christ had you in his mind before you were born to call you, to redeem you, to impute his righteousness to you. And so it would be impossible for him to ever take your name out of the Lamb's book of life. And so it's not saying that he will take it. He's comparing himself to being the King of kings and Lord of lords. Petty kings can take your name out of the the book of life or the area in which he serves. But this is saying that your name is always in the Lamb's book of life. So many people take this as a, and there's religions built on this, that it means that you could one day lose your salvation because God could erase your name from the Lamb's book of life. Not true. That can't happen. That's not what verse 5 is actually saying. And so you, you begin to understand this, that that is not what can happen. So it must mean something else. He who overcomes. Well, what do you mean, he who overcomes? Well, John uses this letter, or this same thought in, in 1 John chapter 5. Who is the one who overcomes, uh, overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here... He is saying the true overcomer is the true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so true a believer that his name is sealed in eternity on the Lamb's book of life, and he will overcome to actually be living in eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's referring to someone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. To those who believe, they are already sealed in that. And so... We look at this as as just another confirmation. Then he throws in one more thing in verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me say this. This is just saying this. Are you listening? Do you actually hear what he is saying to you? You see, if you're a true believer, then there is one thing that is very true. There are no churchless believers you, if you're a believer, you need to be belonging to a, a church that teaches the Word of God, who proclaims the truth of the Word of God, and who seeks holiness. That is where you are to be. If you're in a church that's not proclaiming the Word of God, in, a, in, in fact, I always just like to say, are they teaching the Bible? Not teaching about the Bible, not teaching just stories of the Bible. Are they actually teaching you the Word of God? And if they are, then praise the Lord. But if they're not, perhaps you need to ask some very serious questions about that church. Is this church alive? Does it glorify Christ? Are the people really worshiping that are all here? There's... I'm not going to get too much into that because I don't, I don't know how it would be received. So be careful. Uh, be sensitive. Pray that the Lord will give you discernment concerning the church where you are. Because you see, I think without the discernment, we're not going to know whether they're teaching the Word. We're not going to know whether they're teaching truth. Don't just think, oh, there's no one can trick me. Well, let me tell you, you can be deceived. Pray for God's discernment. And so I want to thank you today for joining us on Hope for the Heart, and we'll talk to you next time.